Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Open Banking Expo Unplugged. I'm Ellie Duncan, Head of Content here at Open Banking Expo and your host for today. And I'm joined by Dan Morgan, European Policy Lead at Plaid, an open banking platform. Plaid recently announced a $425 million Series D funding round, valuing the company at $13 billion. So Dan is here to discuss Plaid's growth plans, as well as to offer his views on open banking governance in the UK and Europe, the UK's fintech ecosystem, a much heralded shift to open finance, and what he took away from the Khalifa review. Hi, Dan. Great to have you with us today. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Not at all. And uh, I gave you a very brief introduction there. So perhaps you can go into a bit more detail about your role at, at Plaid, if you will. Sure, absolutely. So as you, as you said, I'm the policy lead at Plaid. So I manage relationship with governments, uh, regulators, uh, policymakers as part of our pan-European go-to-market uh, efforts. And that basically means I spend my time advocating for a regulatory environment which allows open digital financial services to, to grow. Uh, and we've been reasonably successful so far, and hopefully that will uh, continue. And um, I know at the top of this podcast, I, I kind of mentioned that recent financing. So I do want to come on to kind of pick your brains about uh, the growth pl- plans at Plaid. But first, where did it all start for Plaid? Uh, you know, where did the idea come from? What, what's what's the background to all of this? So Plaid was founded in 2012 by uh, Zach Perret and William Hockey. Um, and I think the original idea, obviously I've been here a year, but we, we obviously learned on the background. The original idea was they were trying to create a budgeting app um, and they tried lots of different iterations. But what they did find was the biggest problem for them, which they tried to solve for, was the financial data piece and the connecting to bank accounts, that there was a lot of issues there, it was very clunky. And really, ultimately, a lot of people, the feedback they got from their customers, well, this is where the value is, this connection layer. Um, it allows us to you know, create an ecosystem, power certain applications, um, and it really gets around some of the complexities we've had in trying to connect with bank accounts. And it's much better than what's out there on the market, but forget the sort of budgeting app. So that's where it grew from. So that was back in 2012, and Plaid has grown now and has over 4,500 customers globally from some of the largest fintech companies uh, in the world, such as Square, um, Robinhood, SoFi, uh, Venmo, um, Coinbase, etc. And we connect to over 11,000 financial institutions, so some of the major, major banks around the world. Um, Plaid essentially builds the technical API infrastructure now, which connects consumers, uh, financial institutions and, and fintech developers. So we aim to give consumers power over their own financial data. Um, we came to Europe in 2019 uh, to do a similar thing, but we build on top of the uh, PSD2 infrastructure here. So we're regulated in a different way than we are in the States because it, it's a little bit different. So we essentially um, you know, build on the open banking infrastructure and we allow other companies to, to innovate on top of that. And I guess that, that's where you came in then at the point that, that Plaid's um, came into Europe in, in 2019. Yes, absolutely. Well, a little bit later, I, I joined in 2020, at the start of 2020, uh, January the 7th. Um, little, didn't know too much about the pandemic then, so been a lot more working from home than uh, than we'd have hoped. Uh, but yeah, I, I came in at the start of 2020. 
Okay, and um, again, I mentioned at the top of this webcast um, the proceeds from that that Series D funding. Um, I mean, how are those going to be used to, to finance Plaid's growth then? What, what are the, the plans there? I think the short answer is more of the same. Um, we want to grow the network and accelerate the shift towards digital uh, and open finance. Um, but we think that digital finance is, is only just beginning um, and we want to carry on building the infrastructure uh, to power that growth. We've seen huge acceleration during the, the pandemic, both in the US and and Europe, and we think Plaid is, is well positioned uh, to do that. We also want to leverage our position as a global ecosystem, global network, and help European companies expand in the US and, and vice versa. We think we're in a, a pretty unique uh, position to do that as, uh, as a sort of transatlantic open banking provider. Um, and we also want to focus on payments as well by partnering in the ecosystem. We really think that payments are the will unlock a lot of features in open banking and open finance functionality. So we're, we're pretty focused on that, particularly in Europe. Um, and we also wanna continue to help our customers uh, create new FinTech solutions. So Plaid is the enabler. Um, you know, people, uh, companies build on top of our infrastructure. So we wanna continue to do that, which, whatever that may be. So uh, some of the innovations will always be coming from Plaid. They'll be, they'll be built on top, of, uh, on top of our network. And you mentioned before about, you know, the heart of all this is the idea that you're giving consumers power over their financial data. Why is that so important, do you think? Um, because it's their data. Um, I think that's that's the, the biggest reason. Um, you know, it's not the bank's data. Um, if you think about, you know, potentially whether you want to share your your credit card statements or your bank account statements to get uh, a mortgage or whatever it may be. It just gives you a better way to, to do that. Um, if you think about some of the innovations, it's a lot so far, even with the limited amount that you can share under the open banking framework, you know, helping people get improve their credit scores, um, you know, fund deposits for rentals, uh, help you get on the mortgage market, again, folks on housing. So I think really it's we, we feel that you know consumers have that right to the data policymakers and governments are tending to agree more and more around the world have seen that trend uh, of empowering consumers not just what the risk is with data but how can we empower people as well um, whether it's the consumer data right in Australia whether it's uh, data portability in Europe we're increasingly seeing this and, and we, we agree so we think it's the power of, the, of uh, the consumers data should be in their hands and over the past year, you know, the, the combination that we've had of, of the pandemic and also the UK's departure from the EU, I mean, it, it could have well thrown the industry off course. In your mind, how has the UK's fintech ecosystem fared? Continues to go from strength to strength. As I mentioned at the in the start, I used to work in about finance. I was stuck there from 2014, um, and it's an industry body which which sort of supports the sector and. I was working very closely with it in its infancy and we could see some of this the strength then early on and some of them companies have gone you know to, to be much bigger today you know household names and you think maybe some of that would, would tail off and you think some of the um the sort of the, the froth in the sector and the excitement would, would tail off but it's not been the case i think uk fintech investment is still the number one uh, in europe i think some of the, the data from innovate finance from 2020 shows that they uh, dominated European fintech investment. I think taking under half of all of it, uh, half the total, I think was about 9.3 billion. I think UK took about 4.1. Um, so in terms of attracting deals and growth, um, it, it continues to, 
to go from from strength to to strength. So I'm pretty I'm pretty bullish that um, uh, that w- that will continue. And I think some of the trends we've seen with with COVID actually are probably going to accelerate it even more. Um, in open banking, that we're focused on, um, now more than three million people and businesses are using open banking enabled apps every day for their you know, different particular services. Um, and then we also recently had, um, for the first time in a, in a single month, more than a million open banking payments and payment initiation were, were processed in a, in a, in a single, uh, single calendar month, which you know, we take this for context, we were around 300K for the whole of 2019. So the growth is, is particularly a hockey stick at the end of that graph in terms of adoption. And, and that's with only a limited amount of data that, that you can share. So I think uh, you know, the government as well, we'll touch on this probably a bit later, um, is still focused. Uh, there's a big opportunity and, and you know, so also some, some threats with Brexit, but they're still focused on it. Um, there's a lot more initiatives coming out to support the sector. Uh, and I think hopefully that will, will continue. Yeah, absolutely. And and what potential then is there for this ecosystem to deliver sort of what we might think of as kind of transformational change to the financial services industry? We're already seeing some change, of course, but but how much further can it can it kind of transform the industry? Um, well, you mean fintech as a whole or open banking? Um, yeah, UK no. kind of fintech, I suppose. Yeah, I. I think um, it's a good question because obviously investment numbers are one thing, um, but you know use cases are, are another. I think we're we're probably only just starting. Um, we're probably you know I think um, you know some people have described you know digital finance as sort of one percent complete. I think it's probably a little bit further than that, but we're still digitizing around the edges uh, in terms of how we think about value and how we exchange that. You know there's. Banks are still have a very important part to play, and will will continue to. But I think there's a long way to to go. Um, regulation is going to be important as well to get that right, encourage consumers, and ensure that it's safe to do so, and put the right guardrails in place to, you know, give consumers power with their own data, but also you know unlock new use cases. And you know that's still developing. Um, so I'm I'm really bullish that you know we'll have much more fundamental changes in the Khalifa review and, and other parts of the, at the moment. The UK government's looking at digital identity. I think that's a bedrock which potentially could unlock you know much more innovation in this space. KYC and onboarding, all these things are, are, are sort of sort of analog log, you know uh, analog friction, if you will, in in the way that you interact and live your lives online. So that could be a big driver in further innovation. I'll maybe talk about it in a bit, but open finance, I think, is potentially going to be a game changer from open banking, where it's just a limited data set, which is payments data, to potentially looking at a whole range of different things, such as pensions and, and, and other places. So there's the, the pension dashboard, a UK initiative, but we're, you know, potentially on an open finance space, you know, consumers could have much more access to that data, um, you know, be able to be much more in control of something which is really important. Uh, which is your long-term savings and your you know, uh, lifestyle in retirement. So I think at the moment there is some amazing innovation going on, but I think we're, there's a lot more fundamental change going to happen in, in the years to come. Yeah, and I'll, I'll definitely uh, pick your brains a little bit more on, on open finance uh, later in the podcast, but I wanted to pick up on on the kind of regulation aspect that you mentioned there um, and just kind of ask you what the future is of open banking governance in the UK, do you think? 
Um, I, I think a lot of the regulation from open finance, uh, open banking, sorry, has is, is, is come from Europe. Um, and obviously now we've, we've left, there's an opportunity to change some of that. So I think how we diverge from them rules is going gonna, is gonna to set the groundwork for how it looks in the future. And the first area the UK uh, FCA is looking at is secure customer authentication and the 90-day reauthentication. The big issue here isn't the security part, isn't necessarily the 90-day continue to reauthenticate the TPP with the, with the bank. The issue is that that is controlled by the bank itself. And essentially, that is like someone marking their own homework. You know, PSD2 and open banking is about creating competition. If the very institution you're trying to create competition with can uh, not can manage that reconnection layer, there's, there's no incentives to, to do that. So we're quite keen to ensure that that reconnection layer, that control is at the TPP layer, uh, layer the, the, the plaid layer, if you will, to understand with the person you've shared your data with. Once it is at that layer and the FCA is looking at this very closely and we're confident that they might make the changes, you can unlock other use cases like dashboards where you can see who you've shared your data with, stop that sharing when you, you need to do so, um, you understand how long it's been shared or what further permissions you might need to add or grant to it. It gives you much more control. If you talk about data democratization, putting it in the hands of the TPP that, you're, that you have the service with is much better than having it in the bank domain where you know, they want to break that connection quite regularly. Or it's only sort of natural into the competition, but also it gives you much more control on this side. Um, I think that's one area we see potential for, for change. Um, I also think potentially there could be more in terms of, in terms of the rule book. Um, for instance, um, potential on definition of account information is an area that you know we're hearing from some of our customers in the states that want to come to to Europe, but it's slightly different in the UK than than Europe, where it's both the um, the sort of access to data and the, the display of data is both regulated, which means that if say they want to have a, a embedded finance application where AIS or the you know, showing of your bank data is just an, an add-on, if you will, where it's you know embedded in another application. You'd have to go through a pretty lengthy process to to get further regulation to do that. Whereas in in Europe, potentially someone like Plaid could take on that, manage that process, be regulated as account information, GDPR, etc., and allow these applications further down the uh, the value chain. So maybe I'm talking a little bit uh, some some details here, but I do think uh, there's room to to tweak some of the rules ever so slightly to unlock a lot more innovation in open banking and it's much slower in Europe and I think it would take a lot longer to, to do that. Yeah okay it's interesting to hear about some of those kind of regional uh, variations there and and of course earlier you mentioned that the kind of 90 days I mean there's always that trade-off isn't there with regulation where you want to ensure that it doesn't kind of stifle innovation but also there's this balance to be had with kind of protecting and prioritizing consumers mm. and their interests. So I'm just wondering how can kind of policymakers and regulators support innovation while continuing to protect kind of consumer outcomes? Yeah, no, of, of course, I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a great piece of uh, data from uh, the, the Dutch Central Bank which says consumers are, are, are on the whole unwilling to share their payment data, so PSD2, with anybody other than their bank, um, which um, you, you think, okay, well, that's, that's, that's maybe something that needs to be working with because without that, um, without that trust and without that certainty, you know, we're not going to unlock more or use cases and add more value for the consumer. 
The same survey conducted by the central bank shows that these same consumers have been offered no new products or services uh, in the last 12 months, uh, so it says. So, I mean, you no one's going to create or, or share that data unless there's a reason to do so and unless it's safe and unless there's some value to, to, to you know, creating that environment where it is, uh, it is safe to do so. So um, I think, one, it's about use cases. Uh, you know, are consumers going to share it and get some added value from it? Two, it's about ensuring that the guardrails are right and correct to encourage this innovation in a safe manner. If people are going to lose your data, then there needs to be a, a liability or a governance arrangements. So you need to understand who, you know, where do I go to when something's gone wrong? So I think there's a, there's a fine balance to, to play in that. And I think, you know, potentially um, PSD2 and open banking is, is a good example of where things have started to deviate a little bit. And that standards that approach that the UK has taken has, has actually created a, a much more healthy environment. Okay, and um, I want to come on to ask you a bit about the Khalifa review, which uh, mm-hmm. came out last last month. Um, first of all, Dan, can I get kind of your initial re- thoughts on that? Um, whether it kind of went far enough in terms of diversity, encouraging fairness, and, and innovation? What what do you think? I think it looked at all the right areas again. Um, I think that was really encouraging that the government you know, brought in someone like Ron Khalifa to to look at the sector, you know, all the way back from 2014 or whatever, a little bit before. There's been a you know, steady stream of different announcements or policy proposals, and the UK has, has really uh, set itself out as a, the place to be for fintech from the regulatory sandbox, the very first one, the innovation hub at the FCA again one of the first to adopt such an approach, the competition mandate, um, the way it regulated peer-to-peer lending. You could go on. There was a lot of things that happened. Um, and I think this was the first reattempt, uh, you know, post-Brexit to start to look, well, where are we today? How do we continue to support the sector? And I think it looked at all the right areas. I do think it could go further. Uh, I think the policy and regulation part, you know, touched on some interesting points, but without delivering any sort of concrete um, recommendations here. We've, the FCA is already moving on 90 day, which I think is is a good thing. But I think it just opened up the door to, to further exploration. I think that's somewhere we should continue to look at is that where does the sector need tweaking? Um, there's going to be quite a free hand, in particularly in some of the retail style fintech and payments, because we're unlikely, I think, to get equivalents, particularly in these areas. So how the UK can can move here, I think, will be will be quite you know reasonably broad. Skills is right. Continue to support that. Um, you know, it's a very global sector. So I think skills as well as visas and, and, and immigration is, is going to be key to continuing to support it. Um, and hopefully the less friction, the better, I think, for, for, for global companies. Um, again, what was the it focused? I think it was also the Hill uh, report on, on IPOs and listings. Again, I think you can look at the difference between where some of the most successful tech companies decide to list. And London is obviously lagging a little bit there. So I think that's, again, a, a sensible place to, to look at. Um, and there's some other stuff in there on sort of trade and um, how does the UK, you know, continue to export some of these, uh, these great companies. Um, I think they're all looking at the right area, but I do think they could have been a little bit more, more meat in terms of really specific recommendations, particularly uh, in places like, like open finance. Um, you know, I think there's so many reviews going on, though, that, it's probably quite tricky for them. They didn't want to bind the hand of what the FCA was looking at. There was the payment landscape review also going on at the same time. So 
I think there could have been a little bit more on that, a little bit more on some of the data stuff, uh, maybe some more on smart data, which I know Bayes is looking at and how we unlock that to create more use cases. So I think they, they probably could have a bit more, but it was looking at the right areas. I know they're going to review it again in a year's time uh, and the government's going to respond to it and hopefully implement some of them ideas. Okay, and just want to pick up on something you mentioned there, which was that the that London is is lagging when it comes to um, listing. Why is that? Is is that a direct sort of result of, of Brexit, or is it something else entirely? Um, I, 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 Brexit could be uh, one thing potentially, but obviously it's it's deep pools of liquidity and, and where you're going to get the most um, potential interest in a in a sort of IPO, um, and it's very difficult to compete with the US on uh, on things like that. Um, uh, so I think ensuring that we have the right framework to, you know, where we can encourage, you know, as the UK to be the, the, the sort of place to, to list in Europe is a, is a good place to start, but it's going to be tricky to really compete with, with NASDAQ. Um, I, I don't necessarily have all the answers into to why. I think there's probably some more um, risk aversion in, in terms of investors and, um, you know, certain venture capitalists are probably looking for exits and, and maybe London isn't the one to to get the right exit from that. Um, it's not somewhere I'm a complete expert in, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of my own personal views here. Um, so I think, you know, some of these are all the reasons. Brexit is is one of them, maybe, uh, in terms of looking to, to scale. But I think there's, there's, there's other more fundamental reasons about the size of the market, uh, depth of liquidity and that's a European issue as a whole not necessarily just a London one. Yeah okay and and let's come on to talk about open finance because it's something you've touched upon um, a couple of times now um, mm -hmm. and as I sort of said in, in my introduction it's it's much talked about at the moment we've heard a lot about you know the potential transition to open finance and First of all, what do the regulators need to consider here? What what are the implications for regulation when it comes to open finance? So I think I think open finance as a concept is a lot bigger than than open banking. So open banking in the UK has been a standards-led approach, um, and so I think it's going to be more tricky to do that, and I'll have to look at it in a different way because you're looking at pensions, insurance. It's a broad concept, not just a very narrow regulatory. Uh, idea like uh, like open banking. So in that respect, I don't think you could overstandardize uh, like we have done with uh, with open banking. Whether that's the API, whether it's the customer journey, um, I think you're probably going to have to think about security and customer authentication in in a, in a different way. As in, a, again, not too standardized in a way. They're going to have to do some parameters on what we're looking for. With that sort of customer flow, potentially you might have to. Uh, not have to be as, as rigid, uh, given the fact you're going to be looking at different things with different rules and different regulations around identity and onboarding. So we're going to have to be a bit more open in how we think about that. So from that perspective, from them principles, I think there's a few things that they probably should do. The first is implement a uh, customer data right for all financial data, giving the consumer the right to access all that data and enshrine that uh, in law. Um, and then that's the, the top down approach, if you will, that the government has, has initiated. And then from below, I think then you can allow um, the, uh, the market to try and build some of that open finance infrastructure. So whether that's aggregators, technical service providers or other intermediaries can create that API layer and unlock some of these potential for consumers to, to sort of build on other innovators. Of course, you know, we're going to have to ensure regulatory clarity um, in each area. And so I think particular 
market regulators will have to look at each area probably in you know at certain times in, in a particular process so if we look at pensions then someone's gonna have to look where regular interventions are needed where the particular barriers are this could include things like where the machine readable data is do we need to digitize paper or in-person idea requirements or other technical standards so there's going to be some you know groundwork underneath and then you're going to have to look at liability frameworks um, again so you know what type of risk may arise uh, how does the customer define redress or qualification of quantification of loss who's ultimately liable all these things that we looked at in open banking i think are important but the two big way where you look at it is a consumer data right from above the market can deliver it from below and then let's the guardrails in place to ensure that it's safe and secure and people feel certain in in how they direct this process but also real big point to make that open finance is much bigger than open banking it's not going to be working groups so working groups and everyone deciding to the nth degree what the exact specifications are because i don't think we'll ever get there okay um and you mentioned earlier actually about the pensions dashboard perhaps you can explain um it's obviously kind of a uk specific um thing but can you explain what that is and why it's important in relate how it connects to sort of open finance really um so pensions dashboard uh is a, a government initiative to it's basically a locator uh to if i believe correctly to to identify where your pension is held and to display that data in a single place um i'm gonna pause a little bit though because i don't have all the background on it i just know that it's uh moving towards unlocking some of the data that you can view in a single entity but i don't know the, the process i haven't been involved in it as much as, as some of my colleagues so i'm not going to pretend to have all the all the data around i know it's been ongoing for a while we did do a report on pensions um with pension b a, a uk fintech which recently listed um which looks not not just at the dashboard but at what we call sort of open data part of it and some of the potential upsides of looking at the sector it says that almost 60 percent of pension savers don't know what their current ba balance is and haven't known for the last five years and 80 percent leave their pension behind when they switch jobs so you can think about you know the lack of access to that data the asymmetrical position that you're in by not knowing at all where you're at by unlocking that, it give you much more power over your longer term savings to understand, you know, make better decisions potentially on the back of it. Payments data is here and now, but by looking at other parts of data, potentially the upside could be much greater. Yeah, thanks for, for going into that. And um, I know that perhaps it wasn't your area of, of expertise as such, but I think that paints a picture for, I guess, the potential really that, that open finance kind of offers, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a huge concept um, and hopefully we'll, we'll start to see some movement here. As we say, the FCA has, uh, has consulted on it and they've provided some feedback and, and hopefully the UK will start to act here. The Commission, the European Commission, has already agreed to have a, an open finance framework in place by 2022, well, working towards 24. So longer term, as I say, Australia has something very similar and they're unlocking new sectors. Uh, each, you know, as, as they go on under their consumer consumer data right. And then obviously you've got other things in Europe as well, such as data governance. Um, again, looking at Article 20 of GDPR, which is people exploring how we use portability uh, to, to give consumers a more right over their own data. So I think it's a, it's a trend we're seeing globally uh, and one that, you know, we're, we're looking forward to hopefully supporting consumers. 
And um, something that I want to come back to is that kind of the impact of COVID-19 on kind of industry. Um, I was wondering how have you seen it affect the financial behaviours of consumers and businesses? I think the short answer is increased digitization. Um, I, I, you know, we could point to many different uh, stats on, on uh, growth of digital payments and, and open banking calls, as we've seen with the three million daily users. Um, so I really think it's accelerated that, that shift. Um, there's obviously been huge winners and losers across the, across the economy, um, but those that can focus in, uh, that can focus digitally and financial services is no different of, have been big winners. Um, and so I think that's the, the big takeaway. Um, I think as well, what we can see from it and what the lessons are is that there's been a huge growth, but there's still some barriers in place to that growth. There's still not the right framework in place to encourage further growth. And things like digital identity are a key one as well. You can't live all your life online. Um, you know, much of it's been pushed to that space, but until we have them connections and, and we break down some of them issues, such as yeah, you know, very difficult to do. You know, some of the, the things that you would like to do with your passport or whatever it may be. I think um, I think we'll probably you know get to a certain point and then get hit a ceiling. So I think again, governments are starting to look at things like digital identity. We'll see the next stage unlock, um, and hopefully that'll be pretty soon. Yeah. So so there's quite a big role there for open banking to play in terms of kind of overcoming some of those barriers. Then. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, I think. Uh, well, open banking has been key in the UK, uh, but, you know, other parts of digital financial services are also uh, playing, a, playing a supporting role. Great. Well, um, thank you so much, Dan, for joining me today and uh, for all your insights uh, into uh, not only Plaid, of course, but um, the UK fintech scene and what's going on there. So thanks very much for coming on and for your time today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. And uh, thanks also to the listeners for tuning in. There's plenty more episodes of Unplugged in production with guests from across the industry. So do stay tuned. And all it leaves me to say is see you again soon. Goodbye for now.